If you have your Bible's electronic devices, you can click to, turn to with me, on Nehemiah chapter 4. So we're back in the Nehemiah series. We're calling this Life Rebuilt because this has more to do with just building a wall and giving peace and security to a group of people. It's really about how to rebuild a life. It's really about rebuilding a life of men and women, boys and girls and families and some of those other things. And so this weekend in Nehemiah chapter 4, I've, a title, I've entitled this message, Overcoming opposition. And then next week, we're looking at overcoming conflict. And so at the surface, you may say, what's the same thing? I mean, what is the difference between opposition and conflict? And every leader, every person needs to know that there is a huge difference between opposition and conflict. I mean, when you look at this issue of opposition or or the antagonist, it's simply this. The opposition antagonist, it's about power, intimidation, and control. And they want to manipulate you. They want to lie about you. They want to control you. And they actually want to stop what God is doing in your life. They want to stop the work. When conflict, you you have conflict in a healthy organization. You can have conflict in a healthy marriage or relationships. It's where two people have common goals and they're working together and they reconcile. It's, It's for the good of others, but opposition antagonists, it's only for their good. It's about their power. It's about their influence. It's about their intimidation. It's about their ego. So when you look at this, you realize there is a tremendous difference between an antagonist or opposition and conflict. And so the way you and I handle the antagonist is different than how we handle conflict. And the way we handle conflict is different than how we handle opposition. And Nehemiah was a wise leader. And Nehemiah understood this. He understood the signs and he understood how do you deal with opposition, how you deal with conflict. So over the next couple of weeks, this week it's opposition. Next week it's dealing with this issue of conflict. And and so here a while back I was reading this book by Randy Alcorn. It's a book about heaven. It's just like one of the classic works of heaven. It's just a really great work. And so in that book, Randy Alcorn tells the story of a lady by the name of Florence Chadwick. Florence Chadwick in 1952 was like this, this champion female swimmer. I mean, she was unbelievable. She's top of her class. She was a really good swimmer. She was really strong swimmer. In 1952, she got this desire, and she wanted to swim from Catalina Island to the shore of California. She wanted to be the first woman. There was no woman had ever accomplished that feat, and so she wanted to be the first woman that would swim from Catalina Island to, to the shore of California. Now, if you've been there, you know anything about geography, you know it's about 22 miles. And it's dangerous waters. It's not only cold waters, it's foggy, it's misty. Uh, There's strong currents that run through there. Uh, There's sharks. It's shark infested. There's jellyfish. There's all of those kinds of things. But, But Florence Chadwick, she wanted to do it. And she was a strong swimmer. She had already swam the English Channel not once but twice. She swam there and back. Amazing. And so she decided she was going to do it. She got a team of people around her. In 1952, Florence Chadwick, on an early morning, enters the water along with her team. She had two, two groups of people in boats that would trail along, a, along with her. There was one group of people in one boat, and they were, they were really there just to help her and encourage her and support her to give her water so she didn't dehydrate, give her snacks and give her food so she could you know, have enough fuel to, to make it. And so, but there was another boat too. It's kind of crazy, but there's another boat and it's full of a bunch of men and they had guns. And so whenever, whenever sharks came up, it was their job to shoot the sharks and protect Florence. And so, so she started out, she started out on her journey and I, you just can't believe this. I mean, 15 hours straight, she swam. Can you believe that? I can't even imagine swimming for like five minutes, much less 22 or 15 hours. And so she has swam for like, like 15 hours straight. 
And there were times that she wanted to quit, and there were times that she wanted to give up. And whenever she wanted to give up and whenever she wanted to quit, her, 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 her boat, the people in her boat would encourage her and say, don't do it, you, you, you don't have much farther, you could do this. And they would encourage her and, 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 and do some of those other things. But something happened after like 15 hours into the swim. And all of a sudden, she like threw her arms up and said, that's it, I quit, I give up. And she started to go down. And so quickly, her team grabbed her and like pulled her into the boat. They wrapped her up in a towel, and the medical team started checking her for hypothermia and some of these other things. And Florence Chadwick says that, that she looked towards the shore, and she all of a sudden, she could see through the fog, and she see through the mist, because it was just one of those days in California. And she could make out the shore. And the shoreline was like only a half a mile away. The next day in a press conference, they asked her a question about that. And she just simply said, she says, you know what, I just believe, 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 I believe with all of my heart that when I was in the water, when I was swimming, if I could have just seen the shoreline and how close I had to go or how close the shoreline was, I wouldn't have given up. There are moments I believe in the word of God. That God gives us a glimpse of the shoreline. That God gives us a glimpse of the goal of the Christian life. And I believe there's times in the word of God. There's a time in my life. There's a time in your life when God gives us a glimpse of the goal of the Christian life. He gives us a glimpse of the, the shoreline. And my concern this morning is this. Is that with everything that's going on in our country. Everything that's going on in our world. There may be some of you here that you're thinking about quitting. That you're thinking about giving up. You're thinking about giving up on some serious commitments that you've made. Some serious decisions that you made, whether it's for God or it's in a relationship, whatever, that you're thinking about, you know what, I'm, 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 I'm like Florence Chadwick. I'm just going to throw my hands up. I give up. I quit. I can no longer see the shoreline that God has. I, ju I, ju I just quit. I just quit. And I can make you one guarantee if you throw your hands up and you quit, you will not reach your goal. And you will not reach the shoreline that God has, that just God has for you. And so I believe in Scripture that God reminds us over and over. That's why we pray. You're going to see these principles in Scripture. That's why we read His Word. That's why we pray. That God will give us a glimpse of the shoreline. Remind us. He'll cut through the fog of culture. He'll cut, cut through the fog of discouragement. He'll cut through the fog of what we're going through. And help us to see the shoreline. Help us to see the goal. Nehemiah, I believe, heard from God. And Nehemiah heard from God. The walls had been down for 151 years. Three men had come prior to Nehemiah. Nobody was able to do it. And God heard from God, and I, and I think that God gave him a glimpse. He gave him a glimpse of the shoreline, what it would be like if the walls were rebuilt, the walls were up. Lives returned back to normal, and people lived in peace and security once again. I believe Nehemiah saw that. And it wasn't only just a glimpse, but Nehemiah started heading that way. He goes to the king, and he asked the king just for a leave of absence. And the king didn't, didn't just give him a leave of absence. It had to blow like, like Nehemiah's mind. The king said, not only will I give you a leave of absence, guess what? I'll, I'll give you letters. I'll give you letters saying you're doing this under my authority, not of your own will. You're, just giving the, you're doing this in my authority. And not only that, I'm going to give you like the, the royal credit card that has no limit. And whatever you need, I'll help finance this whole deal. And, I, and, and I'll do whatever I can to help. And so Nehemiah, it wasn't just seeing the shoreline. God confirmed it over and over and over. And so Nehemiah, Nehemiah starts praying about this. He starts planning about this. He travels his long distance, and he travels to where he was, to, to Jerusalem. And he gathers all the Israelites around that were discouraged. 
And he said, I've seen the shoreline, and what would have happened if we rebuilt the wall? He cast vision, and so the people didn't just say, we'll be consultants, and good luck, we'll pray for you. You know what they said? They said, let us, it's plural, let us rebuild the wall. We'll join with you, let us rebuild the wall. And time after time after time, God re reaffirmed this, he confirmed this, and they began rebuilding the wall. And then when they get to about 50% of the project, and we all know that, right? The 50% mark of any project is when usually we want to give up. We want to quit, right? Uh, we're, we're through the excitement stage. We're through all that. And sometimes that's when we want to quit. And all of a sudden, these four guys show up, and they're the antagonists. And they, they come with opposition, and, and they begin opposing Nehemiah and opposing this, and they're doing everything they can to stop the work. Something I believe that Nehemiah understood, and it took me years in my Christian life to understand this, but just to come to the place to understand that, guess what? I am not God. And there are some things I do not understand, and there are some things I cannot control. Have you come to that place in your life to you understand, guess what? I am not God. And there are some things in life I do not understand, and there are some things in life I cannot control. And you know what? We can sit in this room, and it's air-conditioned, and it's comfortable, and we're in comfortable seats, and we've got our big cup holders, and we can have our drinks, and, and all of that other thing. We, we can be comfortable, right? And we can all make that comment, and see, that, that commitment, and say, you're right, preacher. I mean, you're right. I am not God. And there are things I do not understand, and there are things I cannot control, and in a few minutes, we'll get in our cars, we'll start them up, we'll head out, and we'll go right back to trying to control the universe. We'll go right back to control people that we cannot control, control situations that we cannot control. And see, Nehemiah understood this. Nehemiah understood, I am not God. And there are some things in life I do not understand, I will never understand. And there are some things in life that I cannot control. But guess what? I know the one who does understand. I know the one who does control, and I can control some things, and I can control how I pray. I can control connecting with God and other believers, and I can control my response. And it's clear that, ne that Nehemiah knows what it means to follow him. See, at a critical time in this project, the opposition comes up, the antagonist, and they don't, they don't want a solution. They don't, want a, they don't want to reconcile. It's about their ego. They haven't, it's about their ego. It is about their power. It is about their verbal. It is about their intimidation. They don't want what's best for the relationship. They don't want what's best for all. They want what is best for them. And it's about intimidation, ego, power, and control. That's why Dr. Carolyn Lee said this, one of my favorite quotes. Here's what she said about dealing with antagonists in relationships. She said this, you don't have to argue with people who are committed to misunderstanding you. You ever been around that individual, whether it's in your, in, your, in, your, in your relationships, whether it's in your job, whether it's in the community, that you've got these antagonists, and you know they're committed to misunderstanding you. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how you answer. It doesn't matter the proof, the, the evidence. It doesn't matter about truth. It doesn't matter about any of that. They're committed to misunderstanding you. They will use your words. They will trust. This is where Nehemiah, see, this is different than conflict when two parties come together and want to reconcile and resolve things for the, for, the, for the good of all, for the good of all. And so I want to give you three things, I, I, three powerful principles that have helped me in my life about this issue of dealing with antagonists, dealing with opposition, and then some subpoints. just because I haven't done this in a few weeks, and so i uh, got to get back in the hang of it. So, so here's the, here are the three principles. The first one is this. When opposition comes, you must not get distracted. 
When opposition comes, you must, listen, you must not get distracted. I am not God and you are not God and there are things you don't understand and there are things that you and I cannot control. And so when you look at this, usually opposition, the antagonists, they always start with verbal assaults. They always start with making it personal. They always start with verbal attacks towards the individual. And so we're going to have to go to back to Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm going to read a couple of verses and then we'll, we'll land in Nehemiah chapter 4. That's where we'll spend the majority of our time. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10, here, here's what the scripture says. When Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. Now, who could get angry about trying to help a people group? Trying to rebuild some walls and give them peace and give them security? Who could get angry about that? Now, listen, antagonists will. And so what's, what's hilarious when you just read this, and you can read it for yourself, Nehemiah chapter 2, and you can go all the way through chapter 6, and you just see that as, as Nehemiah and the people kept heading for the shoreline that God had given them, they continually get more and more angry. And they just get angry. So verse 19, when Samballat the Horonite, Tobiah and the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And so... Nehemiah had letters from the king. Everybody knew that the king had given him authority to do this, and he was working on the king's behalf. And so, but antagonists don't care about truth. They don't care about fact. It's about power. It's about control. It's about in in intimidation. And so when people are upset at you and people are displeased with you, especially antagonists, it always starts out with verbal attacks. It always starts out with verbal assaults. Because when you look at this, you realize, this is if you study the story, these four guys that are, that are coming against them, if the city is rebuilt, rebuilt, it will hurt them. So you have to ask your question, well, why are they upset? Who are these guys, and what are their motives, and why are they attacking us? You know what? That's something every one of us should ask. When we end up in these situations, we ask those same questions so we can identify, is this conflict, is this opposition, is this an antagonist to where it doesn't matter what I'm, I'm going to say, they're just going to be angry. They're just going to be mad. And so when you look at these four guys, you realize that these four guys are the four most powerful kings around Jerusalem to the north, to the south, to the east, and the west. If the walls are rebuilt in Jerusalem, they lose power, they lose control, they lose uh, financial wealth, they lose, I mean, they are no longer as powerful as they once were. And so now you realize it's about their ego, it's about power, it's about, in, uh, it's about control. It's not about the good of the people. The second thing is this, when you deal with opposition, when op opposition comes in the form of, in, of intimidation. That opposition will come in the form of intimidation. So it starts out with, with verbal assault. And then it starts with intimidation. That's when people start powering up over one another and talking down to one another. So now we're in Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 1. When Samballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. So they're no longer, just two chapters later, right? They were once kind of upset, displeased, and now they're furious. Why? You want to upset an antagonist? You want to upset someone that is opposing you? You just keep swimming. You just keep headed to the shoreline that God has given you. When you don't cave in to their demands and you don't cave in to their power. And he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and powerful men of Samaria and said, What are these pathetic Jews doing? Oh, so now we're in name calling. 
can they, can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they are doing, he will break down their wall. So antagonists will always feed off of one another. You see this in the story. Listen, that's crazy because, see, antagonists, they don't care about truth. I've, I've been to the wall in Jerusalem four different times, and in case you don't not, do not know this, the wall in Jerusalem is nine feet thick. A fox running on the wall is not going to bring it down. And now all of a sudden it's verbal attacks, and then it moves into to intimidation. And, and, and so if you're not careful, you can have some of these people in your world, whether, whether it's a client, whether it's a patient, whether it's a customer, whether it's someone in your relationship with, whether it's someone in your, in your neighborhood, or I'm going to meddle a little bit. Our world is set up to promote the antagonist. Whether it's on social media platforms, cable news, anything like that, our world is set up. Listen, our world is set up to promote the antagonist. I mean, we, we've heard testimony, right, of social media platforms that their algorithms are written to promote the antagonist, to pit people against one another, that they've understood psychologically that whether it's talk radio, whether it's cable news, whether it's social media platforms, if they can cause two emotions in you, anger and fear, you will keep coming back. When you hear anger about what's going on and fear that if someone just doesn't do something, we're all going to die. We're all going to die, and we're all going to be destroyed. And so some of you, I'm just telling you, and just as a pastor, some of you, you need to flee from the presence of the antagonist because they're destroying you. They're giving you anger, and they're giving you fear. That once you finish listening to that, it can get your heart rate up to where you have anger and fear. And there are some people that are being discipled in our world by the antagonist rather than the word of God. To where all of a sudden they can no longer see the shoreline because of the fog of what's going on in our culture, in our communities, in our times. So how do you, how do you deal with angry people? And how do you deal with antagonists? And listen, some of these are hard to do. They're hard for me to do. The first thing is this. You can't take it personal. Their attacks had nothing to do with Nehemiah. Listen, this is hard for me. I sometimes take everything personal. And you may be like that. These guys, it has nothing to do with Nehemiah. It just has to do with the wall is coming up. And these guys are angry because they're, they're losing influence. They're losing power. They don't want to see this happen. And the other thing is this, is you can't get into ego battles. You will always lose because, see, antagonists, they don't care about truth. They, they feed off fear. They feed off anger. They feed off misunderstandings. Nehemiah never once sat down with them and said, here's a letter from the king, and he approved this because they knew that they were committed to misunderstand. It's about power and control. And you've got to stay calm and you've got to stay rational. And the only thing that allows us to do is prayer and building of community. We'll talk about that. And just, just God's word. You cannot, listen, you have to be, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. In the times in which we live, you better be discipled by God's word. And you better know what God's word says. If not, you will have fear and you will have anger. And so opposition then can ratchet up to where it just, it's in the form of, of just threats. I mean, when you get to Nehemiah chapter 6, it's like these guys don't quit. The wall is up and the people are celebrating what God has done and they never would acknowledge that they were wrong, that it couldn't be done. The wall was structurally sound because it had nothing to do with the wall. 
It had everything to do with power, intimidation, and control. And opposition just never ceased for them. I mean, it, it was all the way through Nehemiah chapter 4. Verse 1, you just see that Nehemiah stayed focused. He didn't give in to the antagonist, and he wasn't discipled by the antagonist. He understood that I am not God, and there are some things that I do not understand, and there are some things that I cannot control. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return uh, on their heads and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. That is a great scripture memory verse, right? Especially when you're, in ca- when you're in conflict, when you're dealing with that sort of person. And Nehemiah knew that building the wall was God's plan. And that to oppose that was like opposing not him, but it was opposing God. That Nehemiah had seen the shoreline and, ne- and God had confirmed it over and over and over that this was of God regardless Regardless of what culture said, regardless of what anybody else said, this, this, this was the way for him. And the first thing that Nehemiah did when antagonists came and opposition came is he, he began to pray. He didn't, he didn't take it out. He didn't take it out on people. He didn't take it out on his family. He didn't take it out on the people that he led. He processed it out. He just processed it out through, through prayer. And he prayed, God, just make their return, their insults return on their heads. Paul in Philippians says this, don't worry about anything, but in anything, everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's why the psalmist that's why the psalmist in the Psalms says simply this. I'm sorry, in Proverbs, in Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs says, protect your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Everything flows out of your heart. Everything flows from there. Everything. And that's why the writer of Proverbs over and over says, you better protect your heart. And you better protect your heart against the antagonist of your culture and your world. Verse 5, Nehemiah chapter 4, he says, don't cover their guilt. Or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. So now Nehemiah as a leader is concerned. Nehemiah sees a shoreline. He's staying focused. But the people that he's leading, all of a sudden now they have fear and now they have anger. They're they're hearing. They're hearing what the culture is saying. They're hearing what the antagonists are saying. But look at his response. Verse 4, he said, so we rebuilt the wall until the wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people had the will to keep going. The wall is going up as the opposition is is going up as well. And we all know this, right? The halfway point of any project, or at the halfway point of any project, is when we tend to give up. Now, everybody look straight ahead at me no elbows, no looks, nothing like this. How many projects do you have around the house that you'd say are at the halfway point? At least the cabinet doors will close. We don't care if they're painted. We don't care if they have a handle on them. At least they'll close. How many? I mean, isn't it true with projects, especially around the house, where we get excited about this project and we start working and then something happens at the halfway point and we say, you know, we'll just call it good. We'll just call it good. And so this is what happened. It's human nature, right? And so this is what's happening to the people. They're about halfway and then opposition comes. They build the wall in 52 days, record time. When you look at Scripture, you realize that Nehemiah prayed more than they actually worked. And so look at this, verse 7. When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, Ammonites, Ashadites heard that the repair uh, to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. So at one point they were displeased and now they're furious. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. 
These guys just didn't step, didn't stop. But at least now their motives are exposed. Their motives is, we just want to stop the work. That's their motives. And so now it becomes clear. And look what Nehemiah does, verse 9. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard and stationed a guard because of them day and night. So now this is like special forces ministry, right? I mean, these guys, are, I mean, they are locked and loaded. They are aware of the threat against them. And so it's, it is okay to pray that God would protect your family. But you also should lock the doors of your house, especially if you live in my neighborhood. And so, so it's okay to, to pray when you go on a trip. God, protect us on this trip. And, but you also should, should put on a seatbelt, right? And it's okay to say, God, protect my health. But you also need health care, and you also need doctors around you, right? That is not a lack of faith. That is wisdom. That is discernment to be able to understand the threat, the danger, and to protect yourself. Prayer without precautions is presumption. And so verse 23, Nehemiah chapter 4, And I and my brothers, my servants, and the men of the guard, we never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon, even when washing. So, so they're building this wall, and they're carrying their, their bows and arrows. These men were amazing marksmen. They could be accurate. They could be deadly with a bow and arrow up to 400 yards away. Un- unbelievable. And they're doing the work of God, and they're rebuilding the wall. And when, when opposition comes, and you know this, You're prone to discouragement. And you see this in Nehemiah's life. Let me read this verse, verse 23. It says, in, in Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborers f- fails since there was so much rubble. So now you see discouragement. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. That's what happens when you listen to an antagonist. That's what happens when you listen to the, 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 the opposition. When all of a sudden you carry anger and you begin to carry fear and all of those other things. And they got to the place, we're never going to survive. We're never going to be able to rebuild the wall. We no longer are able to see the shoreline because of the fog in the midst of culture. The fog in the midst of, of antagonists. The fog in the midst of the, of the opposition. And all of a sudden their discouragement. Here, here's how I know when I'm discouraged, and here's how you should know when you're discouraged in life. Discouragement always distorts reality. It throws everything out of perspective. It, ex- it, exagger- it exaggerates the problem. One person can be upset with you, and if you're discouraged, everybody's upset with you. One person's talking about you, everybody's talking about me. They said, there is so much rubble. Now listen, we know they've been distorted. Their, their sense of reality perspective has been distorted because the wall is half the height. So now we know, just out of facts, half, there's half the rubble on the ground because half of it is rebuilding the wall. There's not as much rubble as when they started, but they're, they're, they're discouraged. See, when you get discouraged, your vision can get clouded of what God has called you to do. This is what's happened to Florence Chadwick. That's why she said, I believe if I could just seen the shore, I could have kept swimming. I could have gotten through it. And the same is true for believers. That's why prayer and that's why scripture. That's why you knowing who is discipling you and who is speaking truth into your life is important. And so I've learned this, that sometimes that great discouragement often happens before great blessing. 
There is one thing I can guarantee you. If you're like Florence Chadwick and you throw your hands up and say, I give up, I'm done, you will never reach the, sh- you will never reach the goal that God has for you. We have to go back to his word. We have to go back to scripture. The third and the last thing is this. The cure for discouragement is to build true community. That's some of our intent behind this whole issue of Wednesday nights of of a meal and discipleship and evangelism and bringing people together and building community. Same things that our ladies' ministry is doing. Same things that our life groups are doing, our student ministry, our children's ministry. Relaunching a men's ministry is to bring people into community where Christians can encourage Christians and we can build community. When you look at, at Nehemiah, you realize that Nehemiah had something that's gaining a lot of traction in the world in which we live. And that's just phrase of just spiritual resiliency or being spiritual resilient. And I really believe in the times in which we live and what we're trying to navigate through in our culture and our time that you need spiritual resiliency. Spiritual resiliency is just this ability to be, to be, able, to, to be able to bounce back once you're knocked down, to be able to cut, continue going even those are set back, to just keep trusting God. Spiritual resiliency is that ability that even in opposition and even in difficulty to be able to feel the shalom, the peace of God. And the only way we can do that is through his word and through scripture. And so there's three things that if these three things are prevalent in your life, that you will never be spiritually resilient. You will never be. And so we, we know, we know like this, is, like this is of God and anointed because they all start with the same letter. And so, you know, that's a pretty big deal to me because it just helps me to remember this is just for free and maybe this will help you. But if these three things are in your life, you'll never be spiritually resilient. Let me give them to you and then I'll explain them. It's permanence, pervasiveness, and personalization. So, so, so permanence, permanence is this thing that when it's a temporary problem, you come to the place and you think, oh, it's a, it's a permanent problem. I'm all, I'm going to have to deal with this the rest of my life. Things are never going to get better. Listen, in every story, there's three, there's three, three types of people, right? And we can see it in here. There's the victim, there's the villain, and there's the victor. All right. So, so, so who's the villain? Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, those guys, right? So they're the villain. Uh, who's the victim? It's, it's the Israelites. And who's the victor? Nehemiah. Now, a lot of us, listen, a lot of us, the reason that we don't have spiritual resiliency, we're, pl- we're the victim. I'm a victim of my circumstance. I'm, I'll never get out of this because I'm just a victim. I can never make things better. I can never get that job. I can never complete this. I can never have a healthy relationship. And so all of a sudden, we just become a victim of our circumstances. And so, but Nehemiah, fortunately, as a leader, was a victor, and he led them. He helped them to understand, let's get out of this victim mentality. Guess what? God will fight for us. We have seen the shoreline. Don't listen to the opposition. Don't listen to the antagonist. You can Lift yourself out of the rubble. And so if there's, if there's permanence in your life, then you will never become that person. You'll never have spiritual resiliency or pervasiveness. That's just that's the inability to keep a problem compartmentalized to that area. For instance, this. If you have problems at the job or you have problems at work, all of a sudden it impacts every area of your life. So you have difficulty at, jo- at the job, you bring it home to, to, to your family, that's all you talk about, you hang out with your buddies, you hang out with your girlfriends, you're on the golf course, you're, you're wherever, and that's all you're talking about is all the problems, and it's just, it pervades every area of your life. That's all you think about, that's all you talk about. 
That will destroy you. And then personalization, personalization is this, to where you come to the places, oh, because they're attacking me, because they're saying some things about me, that must mean I'm a bad person. I'm a horrible wife. I'm a horrible husband. I'm a horrible leader. I'm a horrible person. I'm a horrible Christian because I got these people that are attacking me. See, Nehemiah, Nehemiah never personalized it. Nehemiah understood, guess what? You know what? You know what? Who says I'm a good leader? God says I'm a good leader. God's the one. I am a child of his. And God is the one that, that affirms me. And God is the one. I, I live for him. And he goes on in verse, verse 11. He says, our enemies, and our enemies said, they won't realize it until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. You have, listen, you have to have healthy relationships around you. When the Jews who lived not nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, everywhere you turn, they attack us. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall. He's building community, all the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with swords and spears and bows. After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great, awe-inspiring Lord. Fight for your countrymen, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. See, there is great danger when you and I forget that God is an awe-inspiring God. And if you're not careful, you will let the antagonist speak into your life, and you will forget. You will forget that God is an awe-inspiring God. The first exodus, you know what the greatest sin of the first exodus was? They forgot that God was an awe-inspiring God. They forgot all that God had done for you. Have you forgotten everything God has done for you? That song, I mean, that song that, that, that we did in worship this weekend, nothing else. Sun, Saturday night just broke me. Especially that line, just take me back. Just take me back to that time when I first met you. There's some times of being a pastor when I'm just greatly discouraged. And, and that becomes a prayer of mine. God, just take me back. Just take me back to that time in 1994, Metropolitan Baptist Church. When I saw the shore. And I saw the shore that you had for us. And I surrendered my life to ministry. And said I would serve you for the rest of my life. And liquidated everything. And came to Pueblo, Colorado with a hope and a dream. Lord, just take me back to that time. Remind me of those emotions. For you, just take me back to a time when, Lord, when I first met you, and I realized you had forgiven me of all my sins, and I said, I'll, I, I just want to serve you, and I just want to learn about you, and I just want to follow you. See, spiritual resiliency is this ability to just to be able to feel the shalom, the peace of God in the midst of difficult circumstances. And Nehemiah was a leader, and he's a victor. And so a leader cannot freak out, right? I mean, a leader has to stay calm and pointing people to the shoreline. Here a while back, I was flying on an airplane. It's a little bit of an exa exaggeration, but it really felt like this. We're flying on this, this airplane, and it seemed like the, the plane immediately dropped like 10,000 feet. I mean, it's like the bottom fell out, drinks were spilling, women and children and me were like screaming, and, <laughs> you know, and the pilot, the pilot didn't come on and say, holy cow, everybody, that was horrible. We didn't even see that coming. If that happens again, we're going to be destroyed. We're probably not going to make it. Let's just hope, 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 hope it doesn't happen. You know what? You know what? People that are trained in that area was first responders, police officers, whatever, pilots, Pilot came on, soft, calm voice. Ladies and gentlemen, 
I'm so sorry for a little bit of tur turbulence. Here's what I'm going to ask you. Would you please remain, remain in your seats and return to your seats if you're up? Buckle up your seat belts. I'm going to ask the stewardess to discontinue drinks and food services at this time. Ask them to return to their seats. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to climb to a higher altitude, and we're going to find softer air for you. And once we find that, we're going to restore drinks and food services. And guess what, folks? We're still scheduled to be into the gate uh, five minutes early. Thank you for traveling with us and brings calms. Nehemiah was that kind of a leader. Nehemiah understood. Look at this, verse 5. It said, it's kind of funny, but verse 5 says, Beside them, the Tekaites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. Okay, so this is hilarious. It says, but their, their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. So the nobles didn't do anything. So you know who the nobles were? That, that once the wall was up, and the wall was successful. You know what they did? They didn't do anything, but they took total credit for it. They ran for political office, and they, they won. They became politicians. Some things never change. And so, uh, so we'll, just, we'll just keep moving. But that's, that's what, that is exactly what happened. They just wanted to tell everybody else what, how to do things and took credit for what everybody else was doing. And so the question is, how do you want to be remembered where you're willing to serve, where you're willing to find your place on the wall and say, I can see the shoreline, and you know what? I'm going to build community, and I'm going to learn about God and Scripture, and I'm not going to get discouraged, and I'm not going to give in to all those. So listen to how this ends. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 15, we close with this. When our enemies heard that, that we knew that their scheme and that God had frustrated it, why? Because Nehemiah knew, I am not God. And there are some things that I do not understand, and there are some things that I cannot control. But I know the one who understands, and I know the one who controls. And in case you're wondering, God did this. And every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. From that day on, half of my men did the, did the work, while the other half held spears, shields, bows, armor. The officers, officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon in the other, with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building. And the one who sound, sound, sounded the, the ram's horn was beside him. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is enormous and spread out. And we were separated far from one another along the wall. And whenever you hear the sound of the ram's horn, rally to us there. But please know our God will fight for us. And I'm here to tell you this morning that regardless of what we walk through, regardless of how loud the voices are, the opposition, the antagonists, guess what? God will fight for us. And we need to be reminded of the shoreline. And we need to be reminded to where we just continue on. Because I am not God and you are not God. And there are things that we do not understand and there are things that we do not control. But we know the one who does. And we can trust him. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes?